Happy Sabbath. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, before I get into my sermon, I would like to share a little bit about myself. Um, one of the things that um, many locals know is usually when you're meeting someone new, they want to know who's your family, where you're from. You know, they like to establish place and person and time, so I'd like to spend a minute or so doing that. Um, for those of you familiar with the Kona area, I come from the Leslie family, which is a long-time Opelo fishing family. So if you know the Leslies, you, you know you, you associate them with fish, basically, <laughs> if you're from Kona. My mother is actually from Hilo. She belongs to the Taka family. So if you know anybody at the Hilo Church or have attended the Hilo Church, all the Takas are related. All the Takas are related and all the Leslies are related. So if you run into one or the other, you know that somehow they're connected to me. Um, as you know, I belong to the Kona Church, and uh, I think it's so nice to see all the friendly faces here and be a part of your service. And so nice to have my friends who have accompanied me to support me and see their smiling faces as well. Very appreciative for that. Um, so my background basically is in nutrition. It's in nutrition and health. Um, I'm a registered dietitian. I've been one for a number of years. Uh, and um, right now I'm going through my doctoral program at the University of Hawaii and, and getting that finished up. And so I have a large interest in nutrition and health. And uh, uh, a lot of you are well aware of the, of the connection between mind, body, and spirit. And then so, um, you can, so uh, being able to talk about health not only in the professional aspect, but, but also as part of spiritual growth is very, um, very rewarding for me. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, I do have a PowerPoint um, that I'll be using to accompany my sermon with. And so my title of my sermon today is Conquer or Be Conquered. And um, it's, it's, it's about health and food and appetite. Food seems seemingly harmless, but it's personal as it pertains to your health. As you probably guess, I like talking about food and health, otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I do. So many of what I will say today is probably not new for most of you. Many of it may be hard to hear. However, if you hear God calling to you during this sermon, you should be happy because he's placing conviction in your heart, which is what, what is needed to put you on the path that God designed you to be. Are we up? Oh, great. Okay, so with that said, um, I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, bringing me here today, Father, to share your word and to share your guidance, Father, that you would have me preach to others. Please um, speak, to me, speak through me uh, to those here, Father, and help me to provide them with uh, the things you would have regarding health and a closer relationship with you. These things we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so did I just keep? So I'm going to start off with a very basic question. Why is being healthy so important? Why is caring for our health so important? So many common answers that people have to live longer, to have more energy, 
to feel better, to be healthier, to be happier. These are all probably very common answers among many of us, and they're all very good answers. But if we think about it from God's perspective, let me ask you the same question. So same question, but different perspective. Why is being healthy so important? So all of these same answers still apply, but what else? Why should we care so much about our health? So let's explore this a little further. So, we, so God's perspective can be found in 1 Corinthians, um, starting with verse 19, chapter 6. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Um, and then going back to verse 16, it says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So despite what we think, what we feel, what we say, what we do, our bodies are truly not our own. We were bought by Jesus' blood. We are God's purchased property. So that's pretty sobering, don't you think? It was for me. We belong to God by creation and redemption. Abuse and misuse of our bodies is a desecration of the temple of God, not to mention abuse of Christ himself. Say someone came to your church, they broke into the church, broke all the windows, sprayed some graffiti, you would probably be really upset not to mention sad. And how much more valuable are we to God than this building? How do you think he feels when we knowingly, when we consciously do things, make choices that are not healthy? Besides desecrating his temple, we rob, we rob God of the honor and glory due to him. How can we glorify him with sickly, unhealthy bodies? We rob him of the service that we could have, would have provided as he designed for us, either through physical incapability to mental incapacity. Do you think that if you ate healthier, your body and mind would achieve a level of spirituality, a clarity in thinking, and a level of service not otherwise achieved through unhealthy eating? We need to do our role to ensure the greatest amount of good we are capable of. Sure, we can't do anything on our own, but we have to do our part to cooperate with God, to obey his laws in order to achieve the life and do the work that he has designed for us. God has given us abilities and capabilities and talents, and it is our duty to make the best use of them. Should we render our bodies as a living sacrifice or as a dead and dying sacrifice? So another question, why do you think people should not eat as healthy as they should? Frequent answers that I always hear is not enough time, healthy food is expensive, I don't know how to cook, or they just don't want to or like to. So we're talking about here time, money, and talents. Something to think about, huh? And this may or may not be valid excuses, but that's between you and God. But how about the last one, control? This gets us thinking. Are we truly submitting ourselves to God, or are we withholding a part of ourselves? from him. See, appetite is a funny and sensitive thing. 
It's not uncommon for people to make jokes or light of their own food habit, both the goods and the bad ones. Appetite, however, is no small matter, particularly in considering how our control or lack of control of appetite affects our relationship with God and our respect for him, his temple, for Jesus' sacrifice, and ultimately our salvation. Indulgence in appetite is one of the most common sins from the beginning of time. Indulgence of appetite is often the beginning of many sins, the stepping stone to violation of God's laws and commandments and will. If you're not quite convinced about that, let's look at some examples from the Bible. So starting with Adam and Eve, as you know, they were noble in stature, they were sinless, they were perfect in beauty, and in health. Sin was brought upon this perfect world through the indulgence of their appetite. So their appetite controlled reason. The human race has since followed similar courses of disobedience and indulgence being beguiled by Satan to disregard the prohibitions God has made, flattering themselves that the consequences are not as fearful and as serious as some may believe. Appetite is one of the strongest temptations that has to be met and overcome. As we can learn from this example, indulgence in appetite numbs the moral sensibilities, the reason, and the clarity of thought. The indulgence of appetite also creates another problem. It says in Genesis 3 verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then it goes on to talk about how Adam hid from him because he was afraid. So Adam and Eve have previously enjoyed constant communication with the Lord. After indulging appetite and eating food not in accordance with God's will, they created an almost instantaneous separation from God. So what was their first reaction to their sin? They hid from God. Why? Because they were scared. The wrong choices in food and drink continue to separate us from God. And this lesson in Genesis proves it. Another example is Esau and Jacob. In Hebrews, it talks about Esau being godless, who sold, for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So Esau sacrificed his birthright to gratify his appetite. The power of his appetite controlled him, where he imagined he would suffer great inconvenience, even death, if it was not gratified. The more he thought about it, the more he desired it, so that even his birthright was held in low value. Esau is representative of people who have long indulged their appetite, their passions, and their inclinations, that their power to discern and appreciate the value of eternal things is weakened and benumbed. And then we have the Israelites. The Israelites lived in Egypt for hundreds of years, suffering in slavery and countless abuse. Then God had saved them from the land of oppression. He led them onward to the promised land. They were a testament and witness to his mercy and love and his almighty powers. They were blessed with his presence in that pillar of clouds by day and fire by night. So you would think being in such close presence with the Lord, they were ecstatic, they were happy, right? But then we see in Exodus 16, verse 1, on the 15th day of the second month, 
Second month after they're let out of Egypt, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So God did not disappoint them in the least. He never gave them reason to. He brought them from slavery and oppression out of Egypt. And as you can see here, just by the second month, they were quick to grumble against him as they were allowing their appetites to control their thoughts and their moral and reason. So then God provided them with manna to eat in the morning and with quail to eat in the evening. And then in, num and then Numbers chapter um, 11, verse 4, it says, again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat, we would never see anything but this manna. And so the Lord's response is, the Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had eat to meat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not just eat it for one day or two days or five, 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have never wailed before and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Sounds like stuff that mothers do to their kids, huh? <laughs> so then, okay. And then, so then we see that uh, in Numbers 11 that he had brought um, a wind from the sea and brought quail in for them. So when the God of Israel brought his people out of Egypt, he withheld flesh meats from them and gave them supernatural food. They had manna from heaven and water from a rock. And they were not satisfied with this. They're wishing themselves back in Egypt where they, where they could enjoy the food and the lifestyle they had once enjoyed. They would have preferred slavery, even death, than to be deprived of, deprived of flesh meats. Now see the power of appetite granted here? They, these people stayed up night and day to gather their meat. No one gathered less than 10 homers. And 10 homers equal 48 gallons. So 10 homers, 480 gallons of food. They stayed up day and night just so they could get 480 gallons of this quail there. That's how deprived, that's how much beyond reason they were. So as you can see, the power of appetite is truly no small thing. And this is a text that describes some in Philippians 3.19. It says their, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So those are the more newsworthy examples of how lack of control of one's appetite created sin and misery. The Bible contains other examples and there are most likely many more untold ones. One's appetite had, doesn't have to control you. Through Jesus, it can be brought under control. So now let's talk about a couple prominent examples for those who had victories, victory over their appetites. In Matthew uh, chapter 4, it talks about Jesus being in the wilderness. So in the wilderness, Jesus met the leading temptations that would assail man, which Satan theorized to bring him down. The first great temptation was upon appetite. It worked with Adam and Eve. It worked with others. He well knew his power to overcome man at this point. It was through this temptation that he'd overcome a large proportion of the human race. And his success made him feel that the fallen planet was in his hands. So he started off with the temptation he thought would 
be a sure, a sure one. He started with the one that, that caused Adam and Eve's fall. But in Christ, he found one who was able to resist him, and he left a conquered foe. So Christ began the work of redemption just where the ruin began. His first test was on the same point where Adam failed. His victory is an, is an assurance that we too may come off victors in our conflicts with the enemy. But it is not our Heavenly Father's purpose to save us without an effort on our part to cooperate with Christ. We must act our part, and divine power uniting with our effort will bring victory. So then we go to Daniel and his friends. They're another wonderful example of control over appetite. Now in Daniel chapter 1, it talks about how Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So Daniel realized the importance of a healthy diet from a young age through proper training and upbringing by his parents on the direct influence eating and drinking had on physical, mental, and moral nature. He learned that he was accountable to God for his capabilities, for he held them all as a gift from God and must not, by any course, dwarf or cripple them. Okay. The experience of Daniel and his friends illustrates the benefits that may result from a moderate and sparing diet and shows what God will do for those who will cooperate with him in purifying and uplifting of the soul. So question, do you think Daniel and his friends would have achieved the spiritual and moral attainment they had if they had allowed their appetite to overcome them? Probably not. Do you think they would have been useful vessels to God in carrying out their work? Okay. So as was mentioned earlier, God is more than willing to help us overcome the control of appetite. However, we must be willing to do our part in helping to overcome the power of choice and free will. What that means is choosing foods that is most healthful for our bodies and spirit and staying away from those that contaminate us. Many of us may already know which foods are healthful versus not so healthful. Some may not, but how do we know for sure? So our best resource that we have is Bible. So the Bible basically outlines three different diet plans, for lack of a better word, on um, things that happened throughout time. So as you can see, this is the very diff This is not the Atkins or the South Beach or <laughs> Jenny Craig. We, we start off with the original diet. Then there's an, uh, a modified version to the original diet that occurred after the fall of man. And then the last one that occurred after the flood. So Genesis 1.29 says, Then God said, I gave you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit for seed in it. They will be yours for fruit. So translation, seed-bearing fruits and vegetables, grains, nuts, and seed. Now God created us in his image. He created us in his image. We were not created with disease, with faulty genes, with physical imperfections. We were created in his image. With that in mind, you can bet that the original diet that God provided is the best diet to follow. It must have been, 
He deemed it as being the best diet needed to support good health, sound mind, and proper spirit. He, it was the diet that he designed to uphold his image. And notice this diet is very contrary to a lot of popular diets being promoted today, particularly those that encourage more protein or high amounts of protein and low carbs. Now Ellen G. White's Councils on Diet and Foods, she says, in grains, fruits, vegetables, and nuts are to be found all the food elements that we need. They impart a strength, a power of endurance, and a vigor of intellect that are not afforded by a more complex and stimulating diet. She nicely sums up here, just that's all we need. Okay. Then after the fall, in, in Genesis chapter 3.18, then he permitted us to eat the plants of the field. Ellen G. White says that upon leaving Eden to gain his livelihood by telling the earth under the curse of sin, man received permission to eat also the herb of the field. So herb of the field or plants of the field, that would be the greens. They were not permitted till after the fall of man. There are a lot of different theories I have surrounding this, but I'll save that for another sermon. And then after the flood, mankind was permitted to eat clean meat as everything had been destroyed upon which man could subsist. And so therefore the Lord gave Noah permission to eat of the clean animals he took into the ark. In Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, they provide excellent descriptions of clean versus unclean meats, but we're also gonna go over that as well. So let's examine this further. So clean meats, starting with the land animals, is any animal with a split hoof completely divided and choose a cut. So that picture of the hoof I have below the cows, that's, that, that's what they're referring to when they say a split hoof completely divided. And they're herbivores. This, so examples of this would be the cattle, the sheep, the deer, the goat. So animals that chew cut are those animals that regurgitate and rechew food that has already been swallowed, sending it to different chambers of his stomach each time it's swallowed. It's a process needed to completely digest the food. Doesn't sound very appetizing, but. <laughs> so, so that's the land animals, as, as, as far as the clean land animals. Then for the sea creatures, he said those with fins and scales. So this would be like um, a lot of our local fish are, are ahi, our aku, our mahi-mahi, mackerel, snapper, salmon, and cod. So notice it's fish and scales. It's not fins or scales. It has to have both. Then for the birds, it's a non-predatory birds. So the chicken, the duck, the quail, and the turkey. So these characteristics and traits of the animal are very helpful in determining which ones were clean versus not. The question you probably have is, what distinguishes an animal as clean versus un unclean? While this was not explicitly understood during biblical times, it is more clearly understood through modern science and research. What makes an animal clean versus, un what makes an animal clean versus unclean is their digestive and circulatory systems, their functions. It's easier understood by first examining the foods that are unclean, and then we can discuss the whys of each. So starting with the unclean land animals, they have no split hoof completely divided, and they don't chew cut. They could be carnivores or meat-eating, or they could be omnivores, we eat anything. And examples of these could be is pigs and dogs, horses and rabbits. Now looking at this pig, I found this really cool diagram. 
that will call meaning interesting, I guess. It says, pigs can harbor a number of parasites that are extremely harmful to humans. If you look at this picture, I know you can't read the small words maybe that well, but all the arrows, the little words of the arrows, is pointing to all the place where parasites frequently harbor in pigs. They do not discriminate between edible versus unedible food, whether the food is dead or alive, whether it's cancerous, whether it's diseased, whether it's rotten or not. They eat anything, they're omnivores. This list over here is a listing of all the different types of parasites found in pigs. 19 different kinds of parasites are found throughout pigs. Okay. In an encyclopedia search on pigs in general, one interesting fact that was noted, in some places, they have what is called pig toilets. And basically, these are outhouses that are built over pigsties with a chute or hole connecting the two. So the pigs would consume the human waste, providing for an efficient means of disposal. The pigs were also historically used as walking garbage disposals. They consume garbage, dead animals, and human waste, and then later be slaughtered for food. <laughs> Sounds appetizing, right? Okay, then going on to the unclean sea creatures. So these have no fins or scales. They're typically bottom dwellers, they're predatory, and they're scavengers. Examples would be cra crab, lobsters, shrimp, oysters, eel, squid, octopus, shark. The US Navy in 1944 published a book called The World War II Survival on Land and Sea Handbook. This book whose contents were derived from the nation's leading experts, describe how to survive at sea, in the tropics, in the desert, the Arctic, et cetera, by making your own instruments, identifying edible foods, making a fish hooks, and so forth. So this was their survival guide. And this manual states that all the important fish with poisonous flesh lack ordinary scales. Instead, these poisonous fish are covered with bristles or spiny scales or have strong sharp Strong, strong, sharp thorns or spines or encased in a bony box-like covering. Some have naked skin that has no spines or scales. So they actually didn't, so you can imagine how much money they must have spent with all the leading experts putting this together when we just could have gave them a Bible and they could have just developed it out of there, right? Now lobsters. They're bottom dwelling, they're omnivores, remember, so they eat anything, they scavenge for dead animals, and, resort, and they resort to cannibalism if necessary. In North America, the American lobster did not achieve popularity until the mid-19th century. Prior to this time, lobster was considered a mark of poverty or as a food for indentured servants or lower members of certain societies. American lobster was initially deemed worthy of being used as fertilizer or fish bait. And it was not well into the 20th century that it was viewed as more than a low-priced canned staple food. The lobster market changed once the transportation industry could deliver live lobsters to urban centers. Fresh lobster then became a luxury food. Isn't that interesting? So it was basically, lobsters was kind of the equivalent of spam back then. You know, a canned staple food. For, and for some person or somehow or another, they, they, they achieved status. Isn't that interesting? 
Okay, crabs and shrimps. Crabs are omnivores, omnivores, eating whatever is available. They eat plants, they eat animals, they eat algae, fun fungi, bacteria. If they're hungry for animal matter, they eat mollusks, worms, and other crustaceans, such as shrimp, crayfish, krill, and barnacles. Shrimp, they live on or near the bottom. So if, so if something lives near the bottom, they're eating a lot of the what? All the waste products, right? That falls on the bottom. They're filter feeding. They have a high tolerance to toxin, and they contribute to high toxin levels in predators. So then you can conclude the people who eat shrimp then are eating a lot of that high, high levels of toxin as well. Okay, now oysters. An oyster can filter up to 1.3 gallons of water per hour. Chesapeake's Bay, once flourishing oyster population, historically filtered excess nutrients from the, from the estuary's entire water volume every three to four days. They contain harmful bacteria. They are filter feeders and will naturally concentrate anything present in the surrounding water. The oysters from the Gulf Coast of the United States, for example, they contain high bacteria loads of human pathogens in the warm months, which causes infections and possibly death, especially in those who have low immunity. So what is the purpose of all these sea creatures? One, one website that I researched called it the cleanup crew. They were described as the living filters of the ocean. So consider an air, consider an air filter and, and, and what it does. It rids the air of impurities. So eating this is like eating the air filter of the ocean. Nice thought, huh? But besides that, shellfish is highly allergenic and often contain parasites as well. So if you're, if you're going to eat this, you might as well saute your car filter in butter and garlic. It might be cheaper than the lobster. Okay, and then unclean uh, birds are birds of prey or scavenger birds. So this would be like crows, hawks, ostrich, seagull, albatross, flamingo, owl. And it makes sense because they're scavengers, so, so they eat the, the dead creatures, the dead animals that they find. So there's definitely logic behind these dietary laws. They make logical sense and promote good health. So why do you think people, after learning these laws, choose to ignore them or continue to rationalize eating them? Is it because it tastes good? Is it a habit? Is it a matter of status? Do they not want to stand out from the crowd? If you are still hesitant to give up these foods after all you've learned today, really think of your reason why. Are you willing to submit your all to Jesus, or are you still holding back a part of yourself? Now remember, these laws are made out of love for us. God wants the best for us as any parent would and wants us to achieve the highest development of spiritual, physical, and moral character. He doesn't want any spiritual separation from him as we saw with Adam and Eve. He longs to be with us and work with us in fulfilling the good work he began in us. So then a, a question some of you may have now in your head is, okay, so if I just stay away from the unclean meats and eat only the clean ones, I will be in top shape, right? It'll be okay, right? Well, what do you think? <laughs> Not exactly. So let's, let's examine this a little bit further. Now Ellen White says that God gave our first parents the food he designed that the race should eat. It was contrary 
to his plan to have the life of any creature taken. And think about that. It makes sense. He, why would he want us to eat something that would require the death of an animal or one of his creatures? God saw that the ways of man were corrupt and that he was disposed to exalt himself proudly against his creator and to follow the inclinations of his own heart. And he permitted that long-lived race to eat animal food to shorten their sinful lives. So there was a dual purpose here. He permitted it because after the flood, you know, there wasn't much plants there, but he did it also to shorten the lives because he saw how sinful and corrupt humans had become. Soon after the flood, the race began to rapidly decrease in size and in length of years. So as you can see from this next graph, I don't know if you can read the bottom, but the bottom lists all like the major biblical um, prophets and characters of that time. That line that you see going down, that's Noah, it connects to Noah. So that's where the flood began. On the left-hand side of this graph, you can see the number of years or the age at which each of these prophets, each of these characters lived. So as you can see, starting from Noah and onwards, look how rapidly the years that people lived decrease. So this is very dramatic that can't be attributed to strictly genetics. Something happened, and that happened is their way of living and the eating of animal meat. So in Council on Diet and Foods, it says, will the people who are seeking to become holy, pure, refi and refined, that they may be introduced into the society of heavenly angels, continue to take the life of God's creatures and enjoy their flesh as a luxury? So besides shortening the lifespan, do you think it is really God's will for us to subsist on the lives of his created creatures? Hmm. On top of all that, consider these texts. She further says that the light given me is that it will not be very long before we shall have to give up using any animal food. Animals are becoming more and more diseased, and it will not be long until animal foods will be discarded by many besides Adventists. If the curse of God is upon the earth because man has cursed it. The habits and practices of men have brought the earth into such a condition that some other food than animal food must be substituted for the human family. The time has definitely come to discard our flesh meats. So if you look at this picture, the conditions that the cows are raised in nowadays, they're crowded, they're dirty, they're unsanitary. They're raised in what's called factory farms, which is basically they live in confinement in high stocking density. That means there's a lot of cows per so many acres. So it's high stocking density. So most of the cows consumed in the US are raised this way. They're not living in the open, free, green pasture that so often many of us envision. And look at how they're standing knee-deep in waste. So the picture that they show here, like all that water, that's their own bodily waste. There's so much cows in, in uh, concentrated areas, that's, that's how much waste they produce. So they're standing knee-deep in their own waste. So you can imagine, this is a breeding ground for infections and sicknesses, which is all being, trans which is all being transmitted throughout their bodies. So if we humans were to stand our own waste, day in and day out, you can bet we would be very sickly and miserable and probably die an early death. Consider also the number of antibiotics used in cattle and animals. So the farmer's solution to this high stocking density and standing in waste is let's give them antibiotics, right? But the biggest controversy centers, um, centering around taking antibiotics is that it is used to treat human illnesses. 
And there's increasing evidence that showed that, that suggests that the subtherapeutic use of antibiotics in food animals can pose a health risk to humans. If a group of animals is treated with a certain antibiotic over time, the bacteria living in these animals will become resistant to that drug. The problem for humans is that if a person ingests the resistant bacteria and becomes ill, he or she may not be able to respond to antibiotic treatment. Concern about the growing level of drug-resistant bacteria has led to the banning of subtherapeutic use of antibiotics in meat animals in many countries in the European Union and in Canada. In the United States, however, it's, it's still legal. The World Health Organization is concerned enough about antibiotic resistance to actually they issued a statement urging the different countries to ban antibiotics. And don't forget about all the hormones they're pumped up with. Now, industry uses up to six different types of hormones on these animals, on the chickens, to help increase product production. Um, they actually use hormones on more than chickens, but a lot of the different types of, of animals that's used for food. They use it to increase production of milk, of eggs, of meat, and they also help the animal to grow at an accelerated rate, sometimes half the rate that nature intended. So picture like a nine-year-old child in an 18-year-old body, and that's basically what's happening because they're trying to meet demand, so they're trying to accelerate their growth rate. So these hormones transmitted to humans through consumption of these animal products have been shown to disrupt human hormones development and, and the reproductive system. There are also links to these hormones in early puberty in children, which can bring a whole other set of social and moral problems in addition, they have been linked to different types of cancer. Besides being dangerous to humans, their the hormones are, are very harmful to the animals, causing increased diseases, sores, inflammation, swelling, and internal bleeding, to name a few. In 1988, the European Union banned hormones in meat, but the US still continues to use them. Now note, notice here the crowded, dirty conditions that these animals live in. There's no circulation. You know, they're dark, they're living so close to each other. So again, you can imagine the rate of infection that can spread quickly through this crowd. Here's another look at the conditions in which these chickens are raised. And these are the same ones that we buy at our local grocery store. Besides living in crowded conditions, these chicken houses are windowless. So there's no fresh air to filter out the impurities which continually recirculate through our bodies. And this practice is a result of demand Consumers demand these products and industry finds ways to meet their demands. So for those still arguing their case for consumption of clean meat, consider this. Knowing that our bodies are gods, are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that these diseases, antibiotics, and hormones exist in these once clean foods, do you honestly think God wants us to continue to eat these foods that defile his temple? So a lot of meat products today, they can be full of antibiotics and hormones. And a lot of major health organizations, such as, besides the World Health Organization, American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, they're all recognizing the dangers of red meat and its links to cancer, to diabetes, to arthritis, to dementia, and are issuing statements regarding it. Also been links between red meat and arthritis and gout and dementia. So a whole range of diseases. Ellen White talked about these diseases caused by flesh food over 100 years ago. She describes in Council Diet and Food how flesh meat causes cancers and tumors and disease, 
And it is only within the past five to 10 years that our world has been catching on to the problems with eating red meat. So many of you probably have heard the argument or who hold the argument that the dietary laws were abolished. And when, and when they use that as their argument, they usually refer to one of two texts. Here's our first example. So in Matthew 15, it says, um, these, uh, this is a verse they use, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. But people don't read the whole chapter. If they go back and started earlier in Matthew, then they would see, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And then later on, after that previous um, statement about what, uh, we, what we saw on the previous slide, then Jesus explains to his, his disciples, he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out, what come out of the person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So this is talking about clean hands. It's not talking about clean versus unclean food. It's talking about clean versus unclean hands here. Okay. And here's another famous example. So in this chapter in Acts 10, Peter had a vision. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. It happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And in Acts 10, 13, then a voice told him during the dream, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So a lot of people, again, they take that verse and they say, you see, it was abolished. He's permitting it. But then, again, not reading the whole chapter, Peter, in explaining his vision later in the chapter, um, it, it, it says, starting uh, verse 28, he said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So this is also not referring to the abolishment of the dietary laws. This was referring to the laws forbidding associations between Jews and Gentiles. So God was revealing to him that his love and acceptance is for all humankind, not just for Jews. So does it really matter? I suspect some of you still may, be struggle, still may be struggling with what we learned today and may be asking yourself, does it really matter what I eat? In Leviticus it says, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, those that I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So he is calling his people to be holy, to distinguish yourself, to separate themselves by practicing and living the way that he wants them to. He's calling us out of this world to be his chosen people, separating ourselves from worldly and harm, harmful practices. We are to be holy, 
make choices that regard the sacredness of our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's temple. So as, as you can read in, in Exodus 15, verse 26, um, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right, pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I have brought on the Egyptians. So these laws were provided to help people distinguish between those foods that were more helpful, more helpful and prevent the spread of disease. And if you're still not convinced, in Isaiah chapter 65, it says, to a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens, who eat the flesh of pigs, and whose pots hold broth of impure meat. So God is very clear in distinguishing between those who are his people and those who are not. Isaiah 66, 17, it says, those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pig, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. So the Lord is very clear here. Those who choose to follow the road in eating those foods designated as unclean or that is unclean, will realize the consequences of their choices at the Lord's coming. So do not harden your hearts. In 2 Timothy, in, in 2 Timothy, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In James, it says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. So take your convictions. If God is convicting you, take them to him and ask him for help with them. He is a God of love. His laws were made out of love. His will is perfect and his intents holy and pure. He would not make laws to deprive you of undue happiness. He loves you and longs to spend eternity with you. we are quickly seeing the closing events of this world take place. Besides preparing your body as a sanctuary, we need to pre prepare ourselves to heed the third angel's cry. If we are so easily controlled by appetite, how strong will we be able to stand during those difficult times? We cannot afford to dwarf or cripple any function of body or mind. But victory is ours in Hebrews. We have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 2 also said, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So submit your struggles with appetite, with food to the Lord. He is more than able to help you overcome as he overcame the world for us. Proverbs says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true 
and proper worship. If we are conquered, we are conquered for eternity. If appetite conquers us, we are conquered for eternity. If we are conquerors, we shall have the crown of glory that fadeth not away. So at this time, I'm going to ask my um, Ohana group to come up here, and we'll sing a closing song and then have prayer after that. 